This is 88.7 WHCL-FM from Clinton, New York. Welcome to Dodo History. So, this is not a story about any controversial or misunderstood figure, but um, I guess to shed some positivity and light in these dark winter days. Um, it's actually quite nice out today, but um, it's been generally sort of gloomy. So, I want to talk about a true hero by the name of Sugihara Chiyune. Um, who was famous for smuggling thousands of Jewish refugees during World War II at the danger of his own safety and his own families. Although the more you read into it, like, his life was never in danger, maybe, but certainly his career, and just from the fact that there are a lot of other people in similar positions that didn't do the same thing, so... Um, yeah, it's really incredible because you hear you hear all the time, like, one person doesn't make a difference, or you're just one person, but here's this guy, and he was able to basically single-handedly, although not quite single-handedly, but, like, he facilitated saving thousands of lives that would have probably, people who would have died if he hadn't, you know, mustered up the courage and done what he did. So, yeah, he was a guy that sort of quietly subverted the status quo and just went against what his superiors told him which might not sound like a huge thing but it had really great consequences and really putting his values and what was right above everything else <clears throat> so a little background so um Sugihara Chiyune so actually his family name is Sugihara and Chiyune is his first name but in Japanese you put the surname first so Sugihara Chiyune was born in January 1st 1900 which I thought that was kind of cool like I've never researched a person that was born on January 1st and not only that but the first day of a new century so he was born to a middle class to upper class uh, upper middle class family with six kids and he was the second son his father was a tax office worker and they lived in a borrowed temple but they were pretty well off and he did well in school from a young age and his father seeing that he was you know doing pretty well wanted him to be a doctor but Sugihara had other plans so when applying for college he purposely failed his medical school examination by only writing his name on the test paper so like he went there but then he didn't really take the test and he obviously failed and instead he applied to Waseda Daigaku as an English major and was accepted and Waseda is one of the top schools in Japan too so he was definitely highly educated so on a side note in Japan like in Europe you have to apply to the specific major you want to do to get into college and you get accepted into that specific program so once he was locked in as an English major, it's not like his dad could force him to become pre-med halfway through. So yeah, it worked out in his favor. And then also, so this shows remarkable independence in what is, I mean, from an outside perspective as well, but even I'm half Japanese and I definitely admit that Japan has a really conformist culture. And there was actually some research that's been done on people who were brave enough to help Holocaust victims during World War II, and the research shows that these people usually ha show streaks of independence from an early age and going against sort of what the status quo is. And I know <clears throat> a while back I did an episode, this was when I was still hosting the show with Chrissy, but we did an episode on Sophie Scholl, who was part of the White Rose movement. Um, they were the German resistance movement. Yeah, they were the German resistance movement um, during World War II. Not the French. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, yeah, they were the German because she's actually one of, like, the most famous women icons in German history. Uh, I remember reading that. So, but the people that were in the White Rose movement, and obviously that was, like, 
the height, the most dangerous thing you could be doing was fighting the Nazis as a young person, as a college student in Germany, like right in their backyard. And a lot of the people that joined or were leaders in the White Rose movement did show signs of being sort of subversive and independent from a young age. Um, I remember one of the kids refused to even join the Nazi youth, which I was like, how do you know as a kid to not do that? Like, how can you be so smart? So yeah, these, these people are obviously very extraordinary and they show that from a young age. And um, yeah, so he entered university in 1918. So at 18 years old, it's, it's easy to know his age because it's like just the year after 19. Um, but in 1919, he passed the foreign ministry scholarship exam. And from 19, so I guess he dropped out of college after a year because he just passed the exam, like the public service exam. So, and then from 1920 to 1922, he was stationed in Korea, which was at that time a Japanese colony. And he resigned his commission in 1922 and passed the ministry's language exam. And he was recruited by the government and assigned to study languages in Harbin, China, where he studied Russian and German and became an expert on Russian affairs. So he was more of an academic at this point. And then Sugihara then worked at the Manchurian office where he took part in negotiations and was actually part of, there was this really big incident um, where Japan, they're not really sure, but I think it's been pretty much historically understood at this point that Japan was the one that blew up these railroad tracks and then they blamed it on Russia and then they were and then they were like oh it's your fault so we get this train track now um that's I think that's what happened that's like kind of a broad overview too but anyways he took part in those negotiations so he was pretty high ranking at this point um or like a mid-tier mid to upper tier bureaucrat I would say and he served as a translator also and he actually even married a Russian lady there so he was part of the Japanese colonial empire um, and had this life established, but in 1934, he quit his job as a protest over Japan's treatment of the local Chinese. So this shows another sign of early independence and putting his values over following the status quo. So he then divorced his wife and moved back to Japan, where he quickly found a new wife. Um, her name is Kikuchi Yukiko, who would be his wife until death. Um, and she actually outlived him by quite a long time, but she also didn't remarry after his death. So she was the daughter of a high school principal and was quite well educated herself uh, and spoke fluent German, apparently. Um, and he served on, after this, he served on one delegation to Helsinki, Finland, and that's actually where their second son was born. So they had four children in total, I think three sons and one daughter, but yeah, that's kind of cool that his son was born in Helsinki, Finland on this business trip. And both of the sons, okay, actually, so I'm kind of spoiling it, but one of the kids dies um, at seven years old, which was a really sad tragedy, and it also happened at a really difficult point in his life overall, but the other two, they would go on to study in California for university, so um, very a very international family, and <clears throat> in 1939, he was sent to Lithuania, and this is where the real bulk, the famous part of the story comes in, so he was sent to Lithuania, where he was put in charge of a consulate there, and soon was confronted by Jews trying to flee German-occupied Poland. So there was a lot of Polish Jews that were obviously worried about the rise of the Nazis, and so they were trying to flee 
basically anywhere they could flee to that would be safer for them um and he actually followed the rules in this point and he cabled his embassy he did the right thing and he cabled them asking what he should do with all these refugees and so for context countries usually have an embassy with ambassador and then separate consulates uh consulates placed in other major cities that are run by the consuls and i think he was the consul of this consulate and so the embassy finally responded that they were not to be issued to any traveler not holding a firm end visa with guaranteed departure. In other words, only travelers that had proof that they would have a third destination country after Japan could be issued visas. Um, and I think there were a couple different sources that said different things, but one, and this was also, I think, like the Holocaust Memorial website that was um, writing this but they said that they only finally responded to him after he had issued like a thousand two hundred visas and then all these people were coming and they were like wait a second <laughs> and so then they were like wait this guy has been asking what to do and I guess he just went, around, went ahead and issued these visas and they were sort of they finally responded to him and they were like um they sent quote that there be no exceptions that's like literally from the telegram that they sent and they were saying like unless they are clearly gonna only go they're gonna go to another country afterwards um and even then they're we don't want a lot of refugee refugees coming into our country i mean japan is notorious even today for not accepting refugees despite um their it's always weird when i say like is japan there or are for me because i'm half japanese but i grew up in america um but anyways, Japan has a declining population and there's a lot of economic issues that are coming with that because they don't have people to fill in jobs and it's leading to a stagnation of economic growth. Um, but Japan still refuses to let in refugees and I think they're getting maybe a little bit better. But I know, for example, only like 18 Syrian refugees were let in in a year when the crisis was at its worst, like 14, and there were thousands of applications. Um, and that's even on top of people knowing that it's unlikely to get accepted to Japan, and yet they still filled out these applications. So they really wanted to come, and Japan just rejects all of these people. And I think it's because Japan has this underlying racism that stems from having been a homogenous nation for so long. But anyways, um, so yeah, they were closing off and they were like, we don't want these people. And Sugihara talked it over with his wife and decided ultimately to go ahead with issuing the visas anyways. And so once he started, he did not stop. He started working 18 to 20 hours a day, constantly writing visas. He would just wake up, write, issue visas all day. What he would do um, was refugees were coming to him with obviously fake visas saying that their final destination was another place like a random island nation. Um, and he would issue 10-day travel visas to go through Japan, but sort of knowing that they would not be able to leave in 10 days. And so he issued as many visas in a day as would be normally issued in a month. So he was pushing these out at a really, really fast rate. And when the embassy closed in 1940 at the start of the war, he took the stationery with him and continued issuing visas just like 
on his own and that they were based they were technically illegal but nobody could tell because he was using the official seal and his signature that he had taken from the embassy and so when his own consulate closed though he had to leave he was called back home and what he he was apparently still writing visas between his hotel on his way to the train he was writing visas the whole time and even as he left and as his train was pulling out of the station he was throwing he started throwing blank sheets of paper with only the consulate seal and his signature he was throwing these out to the crowds um, in a desperate bid to save as many people as possible and help as many people as possible have paperwork to go through and apparently his final words as he left were please forgive me i cannot write any more i wish you the best um which he really did do his best i and obviously he couldn't write any more he really did his best and in total he issued at least 6000 visas and because he tried to issue them to heads of households who could then bring their families with them he actually saved many times that number and there is one study that's been done on this about how many lives he saved and if you count all the people like the children that have been born because of those people saved so all the families that they started and then their grandchildren and great-grandchildren etc he's has saved over 40,000 lives so that is really cool to think about if I don't know just imagining like because of that action or those actions that I took so many people's lives were saved um and obviously all the, all of these people coming through there is a lot of confusion on Japan's end when thousands of people were coming in with half-baked visas and no third destination so these have since been dubbed the quote Sugihara visas <clears throat> unquote and they were forced to accept them anyways because they were so they were going from Lithuania and they were going through Russia and Russia didn't want them and so Russia was pushing them on to Japan and Japan didn't want to accept them but they didn't want to start a fight with Russia I guess so they had to accept them and unfortunately um although he issued 6000 the actual number <clears throat> of visas that have been uh, documented as arriving in Japan are a lot less than 6,000 because a lot of people were actually unable to make it. So um, a lot of people were not even able to make it out of Lithuania and they were killed by the Nazis and then some didn't make it through Russia and then many were also stuck in Japan-occupied China like in the, there, apparently there were Jewish ghettos in Shanghai which I didn't know um, and that probably was not a nice life but at least like the japanese weren't committing genocide in the way that the nazis were during world war ii so they did survive um so it's kind of hard to tell how many people he saved but he issued as many visas as possible in those days leading up to him having to leave and during the war he was reassigned to so after he had to leave Lithuania he was reassigned to serve in East Prussia in Prague and in Romania and when the Soviet army army marched through um, they actually held him and his family under arrest for the next three years and apparently this wasn't really bad like they didn't mistreat them but yeah they were sort of just held captive because like they were on opposite sides of the war japan was was fighting the soviet union and so um after the war though sugihara was dismissed from the foreign office after all this work that he had done and it's unclear whether it was because of the visa issuing but that's what his wife has claimed at least and i sort of do agree that 
it's suspicious because he was such a prized worker. Like, he was the head of this consulate. He was sent on these missions and sent around to, like, Helsinki and was a chief negotiator and stuff like that. So the fact that when things settled down more and maybe they were becoming more aware of um, what had, like, you know, in the heat of war, you can't really tell what's going on. And and when everything settled down, maybe they were like, oh, all these people that were just coming through um, illegally, basically, were because of this guy. And maybe he was found out that way. Um, it's not quite sure. Like, there's people, some sources that were like, he was definitely, this was punishment. And others that were like, oh, we don't quite know. But anyways, he lost his job and he was dismissed. And after the dismissal, he lived a very low-key life and he was actually forced to work pretty menial jobs like selling light bulbs door to door, which I can imagine must have been difficult for a person who used to be at the top of his nation's foreign service. And he never talked about what he did during his wartime. He just lived out his life quietly in, um, in like, I think it was a fishing village in Japan, like not in Tokyo. He wasn't in a big city, I think. And it was only when one of the people that he had actually saved, um, that had been saved by a Sugihara visa, a man, a Jewish man named um, Yehoshua Nishri, who had been a Polish teen, Polish Jewish teen, when Sugihara saved him, uh, tracked him down and lobbied for the recognition of what he had done. And since then, he's been really internationally recognized, especially by Israel um, and gotten, I guess, like humanitarian awards and stuff. And he died on July 31st, 1986. And he was so quiet about what he'd done that apparently it was quite the surprise for his neighbors and friends when all like a huge Jewish delegation and people from around the world, including the Israeli ambassador to Japan, came to his funeral. And people were like, what? He was this foreign officer that saved thousands of lives. So a lot of people didn't even know he had a pretty big diplomatic career at the beginning of his life, much less that he had saved, been such a wartime hero during World War One, World War Two, And yeah, this is a really quick episode. So that's his life that I have so far, but I still have a couple more things. I wrote down some quotes that he said throughout his life when he was interviewed by the international press and stuff, and they're just really nice quotes, and I think they reveal a lot about everyday heroism in a way. And so the first one is, we had one, so basically these are all quotes in response to people asking him why he did what he did. And the first one is, we had thousands of people hanging around the windows of our residence. There was no other way. Um, And then another one is, I do it because I have pity on the people. They want to get out, so I let them have the visas. And the third one is, I told the Ministry of Affairs it was a matter of humanity. I did not care if I lost my job. Anyone else would have done the same thing if they were in my place. And what I really liked about these quotes was his way of framing it as, oh, it was just like completely common sense and natural that I should do this. Like him saying like, well, there were so many people and they wanted to leave, so I just let them leave or there was no other way. Like obviously there was another way because a lot of people just turned the other way and left and the other way would have been to just be indifferent to that suffering but that obviously wasn't an option for him and you know he says like I didn't care if I lost my job um but yeah really how he's so humble in the sense that he's not like denying what happened like yes I saved many people but anyone else would have done the same thing and 
it from one perspective it is completely natural and it makes sense like I would hope that anyone would do that you know and the way he makes it sound so completely like yeah there was no no other option but him framing it as unexceptional is definitely not true because it is exceptional because a lot of people were in the same positions obviously there were other consuls and there were other refugees and most people didn't care and most people didn't try to break the status quo or go against what their superiors told them so um it is very heroic in that sense and I think like in one sense, I mean, there was sort of talk about, you know, he was writing visas all day and his hand really hurt at the end of the day and his wife would massage it and stuff, but it's really not about the physical labor and him staying up all night. Like, that's not really what stops us, I think, from doing the brave thing. I think it's much more the psychological aspect of it, like doing things that going above and beyond when you aren't instructed to and breaking the status quo and putting your career on the line um and it seems simple from a hindsight perspective or from far away but in that position I think it's probably very very hard and yeah I mean people are even put in positions like this today there's obviously a lot of disasters and things going on in the world and it's what you decide to do with that information. I think it's actually, in a sense, it's much more difficult too these days because you see suffering that is so far away. Like, these people, and I know the same thing happened with the Bosnian genocide, like, the people on the ground were like, this is so horrible, people are dying, and we need help, but you don't really, it's, with words, you can't really encapsulate the horror of what's going on but I think in today's society like I'll just be on Facebook and I'll see ads from international refugee organizations that are like asking for aid and showing photos of starving children and it's like a lot of information to process like we're kind of shouldered we have to shoulder the burden of all the world's problems at once because they're all accessible all of that information is accessible at once and it's put in our faces a lot um and I think that's why it's important to focus on the help that or the the help that you can do which is usually just not harming when you can and so that would be stuff like in terms of U.S. foreign policy like what's going on with Yemen right now and us helping the Saudi Arabians blockade a lot of important like even medical supplies and I know they've bombed Doctors Without Borders and a lot of the casualties are actually coming from the Saudi Arabian side which is obviously fueled by um, the United States and so instead of worrying about you know like let's put in a bunch of money to this country and help them. Let's focus on the things that we can stop doing that will help the world. I think the same thing about consumption as well. Like if you don't like sweatshops labor and sweatshops happening, then don't buy from sweatshops, buy from ethical sourcing, even if it's a little more expensive. Um, And I know that's not accessible to everyone, but if you can, then, I don't know, choose quality over quantity. Um, I think the same thing with animal products too, like a lot of people are horrified by factory farming. I think we can all agree that factory factory farming is completely horrifying and egregious. Um, And a lot of people are like, yes, I agree with you that factory farming is wrong. Um, And then they often see that as like, well, why do you, why, why, why the need to go vegan? Because 
factory farming, like what I oppose is factory farming, but the truth is that 99% of what goes on in the U.S. at least is factory farming, and that's where 99% of our products come from, and it's different by animal, but like for example for chickens, it's 99.999% of all chickens that end up on a person's plate are factory farmed and so if you don't like factory farming then don't buy from factory farms and be conscious and if that choice isn't there then choose a plant-based option like don't choose meat if it's not from the standards that you claim to defend um and I think that's a very simple thing and like I know individual consumption is, like, we need systematic change and institutional change, but I think you also have to walk the walk to be trustworthy and to show commitment to your principles. Um, So, yeah, like, when you can, it it doesn't have to be a strict rule, just when you can, choose the humane option. Um, And, yeah, I mean, this was kind of a long rant, but I think we see heroes like this throughout history, and we think, like, oh, he's they're so heroic and I would have been heroic too but um I'll never know I guess and and the truth is that's not true at all like there's always problems in the world and there are always trials that we as a population have to face and um standards that we can set ourselves against and um try to do our best so yeah that's the episode for today thanks for listening Um, And next week will be finals week, but after that, I will continue on. After that, I'm actually going on a trip, but after I come back, I'll be continuing Dodo history um, when I get back. So thanks for listening, and have a great break, break. and um, if you're a student, uh, good luck on finals.